It may be invisible to some or ever present to others, but trauma entangles us all. Welcome to Traumatize, brought to you by Network for Victim Recovery of DC. Traumatize is a podcast that creates space and conversations to untangle the societal knots that keep us from addressing trauma after crime. For you, we want this podcast to be an experience, one where you leave understanding how you can be a crossing point to minimize the deeply painful and costly consequences of trauma, no matter who you are. Welcome to Traumatize, where we believe trauma is a common thread of the human connection. I'm Bridget Stumpf, and I'm here today flying solo without my co-host, Lindsay. But do not worry. I have um, just such a powerhouse of a guest that it's going to be a great conversation, even though we don't have Lindsay going side by side with me here. So we're excited about the conversation and jumping into the second episode with you all who are listening. And during this episode, we will be going through an intro to Trauma 101, very similar to folks who learn about the understanding of the neuroscience of trauma, how it impacts the brain and behavior. But really, our goal is to look at the impact of trauma in individuals' lives, and not only in the acute moments of a trauma event, but for survivors in the aftermath and the long-term consequences of that traumatic event and how we can better work and support trauma survivors by adopting a trauma-informed approach, as well as what that actually looks like within organizations and how survivors experience services. So who better to join me in this discussion today than our guest, MVRDC's very own Therapeutic Services Manager, Reese Sims. She is the Manager of Therapeutic Services at MVRDC, where she manages the operations and activities for our therapeutic services program. In this role, Reese maintains a caseload of crisis and short-term therapy clients, facilitates support groups for survivors, and empowers clients to make informed decisions about their mental health. After graduating from The Ohio State University, Reese ventured to Washington, D.C., lucky us, and began a career trajectory. That includes program development, crisis intervention, and direct services to survivors of violence. She joined MVRDC in 2019 as an advocate and then worked as a senior advocate, where she supported new team members and onboarding and assisted the program director in implementation of best practices for victim services. Reese holds a Master of Arts in Counseling Psychology from Bowie State University and practices as a licensed graduate professional counselor. She is most excited about serving survivors of violence in this capacity and contributing to the continuum of care in which all survivors deserve access. So without any further ado, please welcome Reese Sims. Hi, Reese. Hi, thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. Isn't it so funny to listen to your own bio and like sit through the whole thing and be like, oh man, I, I like reading it for other people. I don't like being on the other end. Reese, you've done some amazing things. I've had the opportunity to witness them firsthand and I'm so grateful for the work that you do, not only for our clients, but the entire community and the the different ways that you've supported survivors of violence and survivors of trauma. And thank you for joining us. You've been with MVRDC for a few years now. And in that time, I've been able to watch you grow from an advocate to a senior advocate. And now you are running your very own program as our therapeutic services manager, as I mentioned in your introduction. So before we jump into today's topic, I would love for you to orient the listeners to who is Reese, and how did you come into this work supporting trauma survivors 
and really highlight for us what drove you to become a licensed therapist. Yeah, thank you. So my interest into um, trauma work began when I was a sophomore at Ohio State. And I had a curiosity about the inner workings of violence. So it led me to join a campus organization called It's Abuse. And I became president of that organization. And we held a campus-wide summit on relationship and abuse. And it was a very great event. And it really set the precedent for my career path. So I knew that eventually I wanted to serve survivors or people who experience trauma in a more intimate way. So I ventured to Washington, D.C., and I landed a position as a, um, a part-time manager at Rape, Abuse, Incest National Network. And it was really fulfilling to provide like direct service to military members for their um, safe helpline. So I was like, OK, yeah, I want to do this full time. So that began, you know, me working at different organizations in the city. And at one of those organizations for their program, I was tasked with creating psychoeducational and psychosocial groups on a weekly basis for the residents of that program. And I got to learn a little bit more about myself in that process. And I was like, OK, I think I could I have the capacity to be even more of service if I could provide this in a therapeutic setting. So um, consequently, I enrolled in Bowie State University and I got my my degree and I was like, yeah, this is something I want to do like full time. And then I saw the opportunity at Network for Victim Recovery of D.C. for the job opportunity as an advocate. And history was made. I joined the organization and I, you know, uh, was able to utilize my best skills and being able to serve survivors in my highest capacity. So I'm here. I love that. And I'm, I'm so grateful uh, for that journey that you've had and what's brought you to do this work in, in partnership with you at MVRDC. You know, Reese, a big part of your job here now involves working with trauma survivors on a daily basis. And the term trauma, we know, we've, we talked in the prior episode, it's really kind of thrown around a lot in our daily conversations a bit haphazardly. And right up front, I would love for you to help me establish for our audience how we will be using the term here by just giving us a brief overview of your view of trauma exposure within the context, um, you know, of your therapeutic lens and profession? How does it form? What is it like for someone who has a trauma experience and then has to live with potentially even untreated trauma? Yeah. So trauma is the response to a deeply distressing or disturbing event that impacts an individual's ability to cope. And those responses disrupts continuity and baseline functioning. So without emotionally processing those responses, the impact of them can have long-term implications on our bodily systems. So one of the difficulties when it comes to talking about trauma is often it has less to do with the specifics of an event. Uh, Although traumatic events tend to share common elements, it's more to do with an individual's response to experiencing that event. I often say in our trauma education, Trauma is not defined by an event. It is defined by the person experiencing it. Two people could experience the very same thing and have very different outcomes. Reese, to help us flesh out a little bit more of the understanding of trauma, can you talk about why this is the case? And what are some of the common elements of events in particular that may lead someone to developing or having experienced trauma? 
Yeah, I think our capacities to manage emotional responses differ as much as any other aspect of our individual realities. Um, I think back to the whole nature versus nurture debate and the idea that is now, you know, universally regarded that we're really relying on a little bit of both for our development. So someone who maybe has built resiliency due to experiencing trauma as a child, but they had the support of loved ones may experience further traumas in a different way than someone who has not experienced other non-normative life events. So I think it is it's just a different uh, components. I think there's just very various influences that can determine how someone responds to trauma. And, you know, even if someone hasn't experienced trauma before, you know, maybe they are a generally positive person. So that can help their outlook on healing. Right. So maybe someone doesn't have that general outlook and, you know, they approach it. I would love for you to give us a couple of examples of specific events that you have seen in the survivors you've worked with that are, you know, likely are the ones that we think about that can cause trauma. I, I think what's coming up for me that I actually didn't know until you shared it is that you were working with survivors in the military context. And what most folks don't know, because we don't talk about the neuroscience of trauma, is a lot of our understanding of the neurobiology of trauma comes from brain scans of military personnel who have had chronic exposure to trauma in military combat. And then um, there's this unique subculture of survivors that experience other forms of trauma within a particular institution. And so I would love for you, you know, I think about military service. I think about violence. I I think about the broad spectrum of what trauma can be as it relates to an event. I also want to name that we know trauma can be a set of circumstances. It can be living daily in structures and systems that were designed uh, to harm people, particularly black and brown individuals in a white dominant culture that was not designed for folks who didn't look like me to feel and, and really experience safety daily dealing with that set of circumstances can create trauma, right? It can be both generational, it can be circumstantial, and it can be an event. So as we think about events, what do you see are common events in your experience that can lead to someone experiencing a trauma exposure? Yeah, you know, everything you just said. And also like, I mean, you know, the typical, like, you know, like the mass shootings and casualties in war and you know, house fires, that type of thing, but also non-normative events like an unexpected death of a sibling or a parent, you know, in your youth or even having like bullying in youth, like that's traumatizing. And also like experiences of uh, refugees, you know, going to a, a different land, a new land, a foreign land, and maybe witnessing things on the way. To your point, being even in like the criminal legal system and having to be re-traumatized, you know, by telling stories over and over again or not being believed or not being shown, shown compassion. Like those are all, I think, instances where someone can be re-traumatized. Yeah, I think what comes up for me is while some folks have defined, I think like Sandra, Dr. Sandra Bloom talks about uh, trauma being too much stress too fast. We know there are a set of, while it's defined by the person experiencing it, there are a set of factors that typically crop up that kind of release that cortisol, the hormones you talked about that activate the stress response in our limbic system. And it's really something that's dangerous, threatening, out of my control. And that activates that sort of traditional stress response that can just um, sort of push too far. And as we're thinking about the activation, body is just, uh, or the brain both, are really phenomenal in their design. And I talked to Risi in the first episode about, um, for me, 
living with trauma is the reality of holding both bravery and heartbreak at the same time. Because we can be so thankful that our our brains are hard hardwired to make decisions to keep us alive in some of the most threatening life, both physically and, and psychologically, just really dangerous moments, right? But then we have to carry the memory of that throughout our lifetime. And tiny little things remind us of that daily. And, and all of the connections of daily experiences of trauma, because we do tend to see the ones that get highlighted are things like mass casualty. But then when you take that big force of you and you zoom in on our individual communities. And so there are um, just different ways that we develop a narrative and a view about who experiences harm from trauma, specifically related to things like crime and violence. And um, a lot of it is shaped by not only our own personal lived experiences, but also what we learn about, what we hear about. And it shapes views of how we come to believe someone who's at risk for experiencing violence, who causes violence. And it's, it's a really complex part of building, I think, the shared language of really truly understanding what trauma is. I would love to explore with you after that trauma event occurs, and you did a good job of broadening the view, right, of what trauma can be as it relates to events and circumstances. How does it impact folks? So, you know, if you could start off explaining, once we have that too much stress too fast, what happens in the, the brain and how does that shape even future behaviors? Yeah, traumatic experiences overwhelm the brain's capacity to process information. And it results in the memory spending more time in the forefront, which I know we'll talk about a little later. But this memory being at the forefront generates vivid images and, you know, ideas about the trauma. It can result in cognitive or emotional looping. It could result in being triggered flashbacks more easily, and it can result in maladaptive coping strategies. I'm going to ask you a question about how someone might physically experience a trauma exposure. And before I do that, I just want to share a story with you. I'm assuming you might have heard this um, in some of our trauma education, but it was such a learning moment in my career about how this uncontrollable physical response to too much stress, too fast to trauma is so real. And when we think about getting stressed, probably a little bit how you and I were both feeling setting up today, like, ah, what is going on? Lindsay's not here. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be on the, the DJ, uh, uh, you know, and I start to feel the heart rate. I told you I was coming into this conversation activated by a prior conversation. So I could notice my breathing was a little heightened. Uh, maybe my, my tone of voice was different. And I'm not thinking cognitively about that. That's just my, my natural physical response, right, to stress. And I was working with the survivor, and I'm going to really minimize the facts here to, to allow you to also share on this question. But ultimately, she was assaulted. And what was a fairly violent uh, assault of a stranger, which is fairly atypical, right? And um, related, it was actually related to workplace violence. And two firefighters saw what was happening and they intervened. One chased after the individual who was assaulting her. The other tried to approach her. And as this was happening, she kind of, I don't even want to use the word aggressively, but very clearly said, don't come any closer to me. In a discussion about this, I was there with, with a prosecutor who was involved in this case, who was trying to be helpful and said, as she noticed this individual survivor was getting emotional, she said, you know, I, I'm sure you just yelled at him because you could tell she felt bad that she yelled at this person who was coming to help her. And the prosecutor really well-intentioned said, you know, don't, don't be upset about that. I'm sure you were just 
maybe confused because of what you just experienced and maybe you thought this person was a threat. And she very clearly corrected that and said, no, I didn't want them to come closer because I had peed myself. And I was so embarrassed that they were going to see that. And I had been training about trauma for probably a decade, talking about how when our autonomic nervous system kicks in because it's too much stress too fast, that like things like our digestive system, they actually shut down. Like anything the body doesn't need to stay alive, it goes offline, right? It goes offline. And so things like urination, even defecation are actually fairly common in life or death situations. But the shame that she attached to that part of her experience, she had, I had spoken to her about this multiple times. She had never shared that. And it's just such a reminder for me how important it is to validate for survivors of trauma that the way their body reacts physically in that moment is uncontrollable and it's meant to help keep you alive. So talk to me a little bit about how you understand the ways that physically we react to various trauma exposures. Yeah, I think that, you know, to that point, we know that trauma is more than a cognitive issue and that the experiences are largely effective and somatic. Trauma interrupts the interaction of our bodily systems. So in the sympathetic nervous system, you know, the perception of danger signals a response of either fight, fawn, or freeze. And increased concentrations of these hormones being released uh, depresses the immune system and contributes to physiological hyperarousal. So you have like the exaggerated startle response. So, you know, an unexpected loud noise might cause you to jump. And then you have the hypervigilance. So, you know, that obsessive, you know, looking over your shoulder, you know, trying to, you know, already plan routes of escape or, you know, looking for exits. And then you have like the... Having those those responses make it difficult, makes it difficult to regulate and respond appropriately to emotional signals. So now you might find that being touched is a trigger or you may even perceive a comment as dangerous. And I think that those things can result in someone shutting down. It can result in isolating. It can result in shock. So no words at all. Um, you know, you have the, like the trembling or the shaking or, you know, they're just not wanting to be bothered. And even thinking long term here, you may have someone overextend themselves, you know, in an effort to gain love or respect or anything that may have been withheld as a form of neglect in childhood. So even thinking about like those long ter- long term implications that are not even just physical, but, you know, um, psychological has a big impact as well. Oh my gosh, there's so much to untangle there, right? Because you're, you're for me, highlighting both the science and then the practical impact on someone's life. So the science is we have this trauma exposure that's defined by us, not by the event, which makes it challenging to know who, who's experiencing trauma and who's not, because it's not that clear, right? It's an individual assessment that activates these stress responses that um, health, there is a thing as healthy stress, like you talked about, that can be positive and build resiliency. But when it's a trauma response, it's too much too fast. And I love how you started to frame out um, in our brain, we have this kind of, I describe it as a stress spectrum. So one extreme response is that hypervigilance you talked about. The other is really dissociative, right? That like, I'm not even here. I'm not even experiencing this. Every day we experience stress. We have this beautiful thing in our brain That is basically our understanding of the world and our biology, like you talked about. It's who we are, how we navigate the world. And we can hover in and out of a comfort zone or like an equilibrium on that stress spectrum. We can experience daily stressors that push us kind of towards hypervigilance or maybe towards 
dissociation. It's usually somewhere in the middle, right? Because it's a spectrum. But then we get to go back to our normal because we have this pieces of the puzzle. What makes me feel safe? What makes me feel unsafe? We have the view of the world that we understand to guide us back to normal. But I describe trauma as like throwing a bomb into that puzzle. And the pieces of how I used to understand the world, they go so far away from everyone or all those other pieces that what used to be my old comfort zone, my old equilibrium where I hover, right, in dissociation or hypervigilance, my response to stress can be forever changed. And we hear this in survivors all the time. That window of tolerance is changed. Yes. yes. The window of tolerance. That's what Lindsay always yes. reminds me. It's, it's that what was our original window of tolerance of stress has shifted and it's now different. And the way we respond to stress is different. And I can't tell you how many families uh, who are surviving family members of homicide that I've worked with that have literally used the language life before and life after. Because the way they viewed navigating the world actually looks and feels different after trauma. And that's what's happening in the brain. There's so much that when you were talking about kind of how our stress responses can be cued by reminders of past trauma events. In my discussion this morning, you know, we're talking about this, this mass shooting that happened on public transportation. There was a school that was shut down in New York. And I'm talking to these students who have grown up in a generation where they did daily drills related to mass violence. That wasn't my, that wasn't me. And so trying to understand that, I started unpacking with them. What was that like? What did that feel like? And very similar to what we're talking about from the dissociation to the hypervigilance, there were two responses. There was, it was so common that we actually got desensitized and we kind of made jokes about those drills because they happened so frequently in my community to the hypervigilance of, I go into a room and I sit in a particular way where I know where the exit is and I know how to navigate that room if someone comes in with a firearm. And it's interesting how the coping strategies we use for daily stress and, and after and during trauma, they change based on our lived experiences, but they still align with that sort of um, extreme of dissociation and, and hypervigilance. And so something that I think would be helpful for us to maybe dissect for our listeners is to talk about a few things um, that we might expect when working with survivors of trauma that is a signal that something in the environment, something that we've we've maybe even done as a helper or something they're experiencing is reminding them of that old event. And that's starting to do all the things you talked about. It's activating my my stress response physically, emotionally. How might a survivor of trauma show up in our daily interactions when they're being reminded of past or even perceived traumas in the moment? Yeah, you know, I think really paying attention to body language. I remember being a kid and folding my arms was considered a sign of like disrespect or that I was angry. But folding your arms really signals that you need self-soothing, that you may be uncomfortable, you might be out of your comfort zone. So really paying attention to the body language of the people that we interact with. If, you know, they are shifting away, you know, or if they like going into themselves, right? Um, I think that signals like maybe a need for like self-soothing or comfort. Also, paying attention to what's being said, like really listening to hear and not listening to respond. Because uh, people will tell you, they will tell you, you know, even if they don't say it directly. I think that you can infer certain things from someone who is not in their best mind state. And then also asking, you know, always approaching people with compassion. You have no idea what that person has gone through, what they're currently dealing with. 
And, you know, you might just be the person that sets that person off on edge. Like if they've already, you know, are experiencing flashbacks about their trauma or dealing with the impact of their trauma on a daily basis. You just never know. And we don't know what it might be about our own identities, the way we're showing up that might be causing that trauma cue. And that's true of people in the helping profession. That's true of just walking down the street, walking out, you know, of the podcast studio here. An awareness of how ever-present trauma is in people's daily lives based on their identities and lived experience from a place of empathy can change how we experience each other. I would love to talk a little bit about in this understanding of trauma as it relates to stress. Really, stress and trauma are interdependent, right? People experience stress, like I said, every single day and typically um, during a crisis event. But that stress doesn't always develop into a trauma exposure. What do you really view, Reese, as the differences between stress and trauma? You mentioned the window of tolerance. Describe that a little bit more for us and help us unpack the difference between stress and trauma. Yeah, so I think that stress is more of an acute and immediate response. I think stress response can make muscles tense up, and those tight muscles can cause somatic symptoms of headaches, back and shoulder pain and body aches. I think when you are feeling sustained stress due to your response of a disturbing event is when trauma develops. Yeah, it's such a good point. You know, Rebecca Campbell, Dr. Campbell is one of the leading researchers on the neurobiology of sexual trauma and really neurobiology of trauma in general. She's she's taught me a lot about what I've come to understand about trauma recall and memories and has really again, widen the lens of how we look at um, trauma responses and this expectation historically that someone experiences acute trauma, particularly if it was related to crime or violence, that they should call 911. They should immediately have a very clear narrative and report of what happened. That should be the exact same story two days, three weeks later. And we know it's actually the opposite. It's actually more likely that in a 48-to sleep cycle window that trauma recall is improved. It's enhanced after two sleep cycles. And we should expect there to be some differences or even gaps in that acute memory. And I am thinking about a personal experience I had when you were talking about like both heightened memory of certain senses and then also this almost diluted recall. So I was in a pretty serious car accident when I was 14 years old with a, a friend who was young and we were driving down a, a dirt road that uh, where we grew up, they put sort of like washboards on the road. And so if you drive too fast on a dirt road, you kind of fishtail. I don't know if you're familiar with that term. A lot of my like uh, background is coming out here where I grew up. But and so as you're fishtailing, the car kind of swerves and we were driving down a big mountain and we were starting to move. He lost control of the car into the mountain and he overcorrected and it was a cliff on my right side where I'm sitting in the passenger side. It was pretty scary. And um, unfortunately, well, luckily we're both okay. But as it was rolling off this cliff, I remember putting my hands up on the roof of the car and I was not wearing a seatbelt because I was not a logically processing teenager uh, thinking about safety, and unfortunately. And I remember falling onto the roof of the car as it's first bending, rolling off this cliff. And it endowed and it rolled again, and the car was sort of like smashed when we crawled out of it. And to this day, I can tell you, Reese, 
the second it turned, I heard my window break as I'm like falling onto the floor. And this is broad daylight. I remember the second turn, the front windshield broke. I remember hearing exactly the times and the place we were in the role of when these windows were breaking. But I can't tell you anything about what I saw. And I don't know if I closed my eyes, but my visual memory is gone. Like there's nothing there. Again, it wasn't dark or anything. It's likely maybe I closed my eyes, but it's so common in, in trauma memory recall that survivors will remember certain elements, right? And some are totally, we see this a lot in gun-related violence, where the individual may hyper-focus and have really acute memory of what a particular weapon looked like. But when we asked how many shots they heard, there's no memory there. And we were taught as a society, that's, I don't know, that's suspicious. If they remember that detail of the weapon, they should remember. Exactly. It's that false narrative. And you've mentioned fight, flight, freeze, and fawn. I'm glad you used all four because I'm just uh, sort of getting acclimated to the fourth concept of fawn. I guess I've learned it, correct me if I'm wrong, as often a trauma response that we see to stay alive, just like fight, flight, or freeze, which we're all pretty familiar with at this point. Freeze was added in the last decade or so. But with fawn, it's really compliance, particularly for children who've experienced abuse and neglect. We see it come up and you mentioned that. And one of the things you said, you talked about how our kind of auto-generated fight, flight, freeze, or fawn that will kick in even if we're not in a real life-threatening situation, if our body says, oh, I've seen something like this before, something feels similar, only like 10 to 20% overlap of that template of danger gets activated, we might start exhibiting compliant behaviors, right? Talk to me a little bit how you see that fight, flight, or freeze, or even fawn response, and how have you seen it show up in your work with survivors? Yeah, you know that that fawn, it's really interesting because even with like adult sexual assault survivors, that idea of what I see a lot is, you know, besides like the freezing and not being able to really do anything, that idea that a lot of survivors say, they, um, that idea that it was happening and I just let it happen or I knew what was happening to me was wrong, but I just closed my eyes and allowed it to happen or I followed their directions. I did what they told me to do. And, you know, that acquiescing to the request and really feeling guilty and shame about that, I think is is brought up a lot in the survivors I serve in trying to explain that concept. It may make sense a bit to them, but it's still that rationale. Like, well, no, I still should have. So it really is trying to, like, explain the terms and do it in, in a way that makes sense to the client. And yeah, it's difficult. It's difficult because some people aren't really interested in brain science or learning how the brain works, right? They're just like, well, this was my decision. I made this decision. So it really is uh, is trying to, to try to explain it. But, you know, I'm always allowing that space and, you know, to ask questions and to always affirming and reassuring clients that, you know, that system it kicks in. They have no control over it. It is what our bodies do to protect us. And they are going to find, our brains are going to find the best way out. Yeah, you're so right. Because I'm like so nerdy about this stuff. I'm like, who doesn't love talking <laughs> about the limbic system? But not everyone has that desire. And I think it is like, where do we find the shared language? Really at the core, what you're saying is to, as a society, as individuals, to acknowledge that 
the way someone responds to trauma, to a trauma exposure, trauma event, it's not defined by what you think that is. And it also may not be logical what you would have thought you would have liked to have done. And we attach a lot of judgment. The, the, the place of shame comes from society being like, well, you should call 911 and you should do these things. And if you don't do that, like, oh, there's something to be suspicious here. We've created this narrative that is really inconsistent with science. And so it is how do we create that shared connection and understanding for folks that have had those experiences so that they're validated and those uncontrollable physical, emotional, those cues, those those future fight, flight, fawn, or freeze responses are are normalized for them. And we can help them release some of the shame that we as a society created. Like we created that, right? I think one of the difficulties for survivors seeking help is the fact that revisiting events um, processing, right, can be a cue. And that can be, as you mentioned, engaging in formal structures like the criminal legal system. It can even be engaging with helpful advocates and lawyers and sometimes even therapeutic services. What are some of the trauma-informed approaches that you use within your practice when you start to see the conversation you're having is allowing that individual that you're working with to support their, you're observing a manifestation of trauma. Now that can be glassy eyes, I'm not in the room, that can be agitation, more of a fight response, that can be I'm looking for the door, like I'm trying to fly out of here. It can be the, the fawning, sort of pivoting to, to do what they think is expected. When you start to see those manifestations of trauma in your work, what do you do to navigate that from a trauma-informed approach? Yeah, I think firstly, I emphasize to the survivor that they do not have to share the specifics of their story with me. I ask to learn their story more so for them to be able to put a word or feeling on it. And I want survivors to feel empowered as much as possible. And a part of that is not subjecting them to reliving the experience if they don't want to. Naturally, most clients do tell their stories in session because I do offer a space of it's not you should have done this or why didn't you do that or so-and-so did that, really? So basically they have the emotional safety to truly process and talk about, you know, what happened and be validated and be affirmed. So when some of those trauma responses do come about while they are sharing their story or maybe we talk, start to talk about certain emotions that bring back to memory those traumatic events, being an affirming and compassionate presence. So maybe gently grounding them, bringing them back to center, letting them, reminding them that this is a safe space. I'm here for them. You know, maybe if I see breathing being changed, like do some breathing exercises. There's a painting in the room I use here, which is a, a really beautiful painting. And, you know, we may focus on it a little bit. Things to bring them back to present and center to let them know that, you know, this is a space where you can be completely who you are. You can talk about exactly how you feel. And I'm going to stick here through it with you. I'm going to be here and I'm not going to judge you. And we're going to talk about it. And we're going to follow your lead. And I think that's what's important too, right? Because I have some clients who delve right into their trauma narrative. First session, we probably, I don't even get to like introduce. They just go right into it. But, you know, I use my best clinical judgment in supporting that client however they see fit. I do a lot of um, reconciling stuck points because typically that is where that is the um, the blockage for for survivors to who where they have trouble in moving forward from the trauma. 
So, you know, we think about their prior worldviews that have been challenged by the experience of the traumatic event and think about ways to, to reconcile that. So that could be ideas about danger. That can be ideas about safety. That can be ideas about trust. I had one client, her stuck point was bad things happen at night. So we talked about, you know, some objectively good things that happen at night, like the sun setting and, you know, uh, thinking about like events outside of the United States, like the Lantern Fest, where like the beautiful lanterns go up. So it's, it really is just working with the client in a collaborative effort to help them in uh, accessing their own internal resources. Yeah, everything you're describing, I'm also a nerd about the neuroscience of trust and everything you're describing is about it's really a full circle from where we started, which is trauma is stressful event, threatening, dangerous, out of my control, too much stress, too fast, outside of my window of tolerance. How we best respond to support someone who's had that experience. And I don't care if you're a therapist, if you're an IT, if you're wh whoever you are, you will navigate this world and you will intersect with someone who has either an acute trauma event, a lived experience, a daily experience of trauma exposure. And when you see that show up in them, they're not in the room, they're glassy-eyed, they're agitated. When you see that show up, the simple things you talked about, Reese, that's how we create connection, right? It's, it is bringing them back into the, the space, right? And I'm not as, as skilled and talented as you and some of our other advocates about some of those grounding strategies. When you talked about the painting, I'm like, oh, I love that. But a trick I learned was water. That when we ask, um, and again, it's always about creating opportunities and choice because that's what impacts the sort of uh, long-term consequences of unaddressed trauma. Asking if someone wants water and that starts to slow down breathing. It's just, uh, there's so many simple little things we can do to create compassion and, and understanding for the person that's showing up in that way. But we have developed this um, kind of lightning round that I'll close this out with before I read the outro here. And it's called our exit exchange. Questions that we're inviting from the outside, a way for listeners to integrate in. And I have kind of three quick questions and just feel free to give me like your one sentence answer, which is kind of tough. But if you could wave a magic wand and change or reshape how society views trauma, what would you do with that magic wand? That knowledge that trauma is common, like to be a human being is to suffer a bit. So it's the one thing that connects us. So uh, that idea that knowing that trauma is common, but it's also unique and deserves a place for compassion to exist in, you know, dealing with it. So just that awareness. So what tools and resources do you think have best equipped you to offer trauma-informed care? Oh, books, 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 books. I love books. Uh, so like I mentioned earlier, The Body Bears Burden, Body Keeps Score, True Refuge. I love reading articles too. So like uh, articles on cognitive processing therapy, um, like like you, I love like learning about this stuff. So I'm always trying to, you know, learn more. I have a feeling listeners are going to want to get Reese book recommendations so we can link those to the podcast that will, I will follow up with you on that. So Reese, thank you for joining us for this episode of the Traumatized podcast and a special thanks to Reese, our guest. We want to let all of our listeners know that you can share your thoughts, comments, and topics for discussion on future episodes of Traumatized. You can even be a part of the exit exchange by submitting questions you want us to offer to the host, to our guests. Please use the hashtag Traumatized, T-I-E-S, and tag at NVRDC on Twitter or LinkedIn to join the conversation. 
Be sure to subscribe, rate and review the Traumatized Podcast wherever you listen. Be well, everyone, and see you again next time for more Untangling. This episode of Traumatize is over, but this podcast is just one of our many resources. NVRDC welcomes all survivors of crime and their supporters. So please visit us at nvrdc.org to learn more about how to access our trauma education and how to partner with us to create survivor-defined justice.